Our fight to eradicate corruption, maladministration, unethical leaders, and the abuse of taxpayers' money by those in power continues. It's fresh, it's fearless, and focused. The Outer Hour, where your voice matters. Good evening and welcome to yet another Outer Hour. I say yet another Outer Hour, but really this is the first Outer Hour of 2021, the first live show for the year. And I've spent a bit of December and a bit of January waiting for you to come back. So welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. Tonight on the show, Rudy Heineke, Portfolio Manager at Outer, will take us through the Zondo Commission and update us on the latest. Chris Yelland, our electricity expert. Well, he's way more than that. The MD of uh, EE uh, Business Intelligence, I think it is. Chris, I've, I've, uh, I will there's no man that knows more about Eskom and what the problems are than Chris Yelland. And he's on the show tonight. What is the latest? Who's to blame when it comes to the load shedding we've seen this last week? And then Wayne Divinage, CEO of Outer, will take us through Outer's plans for 2021. Don't forget, if you're watching via the Outer Facebook page, you can comment. You can pop your comments in the comment section down below the broadcast. Uh, Sam van Nispen. Head of comms and marketing at Outer is on board tonight, assisted by Iva Cleary. When you see Outer, you know it's them. The show is put together by Benella Sinatla. Let's say hello to the team this evening. There they are. Rudy Heineke, Wayne Divinage, and Chris Yelland. Let's say hello to the big boss quickly and say, uh, Wayne, how's it? How was your December? It was great. Um, got a good amount of rest in, but we needed it. It was all wiped out in the first week of January. I think this yeah. year feels old already, but exciting, you know, um, in many respects and scary in, in, in a number of others. Uh, but, yeah, we're raring to go. We've had the, the Exco uh, had a uh, quick strategic review session already, uh, uh, just plotting the way forward, with, especially with the vaccine and the COVID the issues and the economy uh, unfolding in front of us. Uh, and this being an election year. So um, I'm keen to just chat a little bit about that a bit later on. But so nice to be back uh, on Outer Hour and the, the team back uh, in the seats and grinding away uh, at this great work that they're doing. The work doesn't stop, Wayne. No, never. Never does. Rudy Heineke, how was your December holiday? And uh, what are you looking forward to in 2021, Rudy? Uh, good evening, Tom. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you. It's nice to be back. Uh, and uh, a very safe and uh, healthy, prosperous year, 2021, to you and all the supporters, uh, the colleagues and everybody out there. hope that this year is going to be a big one. Uh, December was a very nice break. I think all the outer, my, me, myself and my outer colleagues had... Uh, you know, a nice break and uh, could relax for a while. Mm. But yes, like Wayne said, uh, back in seats and behind the desks, uh, for us, we can work from home. Uh, thanks for that, boss. Uh, and um, yes, uh, grinding away. Well, it's good to see you again. You're looking, you're looking healthy uh, and fit and happy. That's nice to see. And Chris Yellen, did you have a good December? Are we going to have any electricity uh, this year? Chris, is it all going to run out? Well... Oh, last year was worse than the year before, and this year could be worse than last year. So uh, we're not sure where things are going at this stage. Uh, but 
all signals are that we in for another rough year. Well, there we go. Uh, straight from the horse's mouth. We'll unpack that in just a couple of minutes with Chris Yelland. Let's go to the comments section, shall we? And just a reminder, if you're watching the show, hit the like and share button and let's get it out to more people. Like and share the outer hour so we can grow the outer community. Uh, first on board tonight was Anne Mountford, who said, so pleased to have you back. Well, we missed you, uh, Anne, and it's good to have you back too, right where you belong on a Wednesday night at 7 p.m. John Oscar, no stranger to the show, says, hello all, welcome back and be safe. I think that's gonna, you know, those are going to be operative words in 2021 with everything we've seen around COVID. Uh, be safe, uh, and that's the message that we send back to you. Uh, John and say hope you stay safe this year too. Devotion Moodley says hi Altarians May 21 2021 be a blessed year to all of you and hope that unethical leaders go to jail. Here here Judy van Gilsweek is on board good evening all compliments of the season to you same to you Judy. Uh, Barbara Schillingall says welcome back Esme van Heerden is on board a lot of familiar names tonight it's nice to see that nice to see you there. Wandise boy Wandise uh, says hello Dumelang Sunny Bonani Mulweni, I'll add a couple. Bonjour, bon dia, Borada, Saudi Cup, Huenant, how's it? Nice to have you on board, Wandisa. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Gail Compton says hello from Durban. Derbs by the sea, except you can't walk on the beaches, Gail. Nice to have you with us. Uh, Sharish Sonny says happy new year. Hello, Ambassador. Good to have you with us. Marina Mulberg-Smith says, Hi, Outer Team. My Wednesdays are right again. We'll take more comments as we make our way through the show. Remember that you can comment and pose questions to any one of the team tonight, Rudy Haneke, Chris Yelland, or Wayne Divinage, as we explore the topics. Now, let's start with Rudy Haneke. I don't know what you were doing over the last couple of weeks. I was on holiday in Velterfrieden Park. No ocean, no mountains, but the people are nice. And I had lots of time to watch television. And part of what I watched was the Zondo Commission. And I think I echo many South Africans' feelings when I say, at times it seemed like the witnesses at the Zondo Commission were not taking it seriously. But I'd like to know what Rudy Heineke has to say about the Zonda Commission and the witnesses at the State Capture Commission in December and January, which included partners of McKinsey on Transnet, Paul Holden from Shadow World Investigations, uh, who are investigating the Transnet flow of funds, Marcella Coco on Tegeta, the purchase of the Optimum Mine, and his relationship with Salim Essa, Brian Malifi, who uh, testified just the other day, Gavin Craythorn on Alex Core, and Anosh Singh, who we saw uh, his testimony being postponed just a little while ago. So those are the witnesses that were lined up for December and January. And what is important, I guess, is that all these witnesses testified on the role of the Guptas and Salim Essa with regards to state capture. We're entering a phase at the Commission where more evidence will be presented on the involvement of the Guptas and ESSA at SOEs and how contracts were awarded to various companies and how these payments from SOEs to these companies ended up with the Guptas. We'll also talk about civil society organizations under the umbrella of the Civil Society Working Group on State Capture and what their involvement at the Zondo Commission is. The uh, Civil Society uh, Working Group on State Capture has called, uh, has asked the Zondo Commission to call corporates, big companies, to testify at the Commission, like McKinsey has done, so that we can see 
what these companies have to say for themselves, the implicated companies, banks, auditors, law firms, should be called to testify on their role in enabling state capture. We'll explore that and unpack it with Rudy Heineker. So Rudy, what's the significance of the offer made by McKinsey to pay back 650 million rand that they received from Transnet while working alongside regiments? Is 650 million rand good enough? Yes, Tom, uh, going back to December when uh, some of the partners of McKinsey testified, um, I think, you know, uh, with the evidence leader and uh, the Deputy Chief Justice making the announcement that McKinsey said that they will pay back around 650 million rand to Transnet um, was quite significant. But uh, we, uh, as we saw that they paid back uh, almost a billion rand to, to ESCOM as well. Um, what really worries us is the fact that, uh, you know, I don't think that is enough. Alta has done some investigation. Uh, we have looked at the figure and the, the amounts uh, that they earned alongside uh, regiments when they were working hand in hand with regiments. And our uh, investigations show around uh, a billion rand received in that time, just under a billion rand, 917 million. And they're offering 650. So 300 million rand is... Uh, is quite a, uh, an amount, you know, yeah. losing, uh, losing it uh, in, this, in this instance. We have notified Transnet uh, as well as uh, the law enforcement agencies, uh, the NPA and the, uh, the investigating director, direct, the investigative director, directorate at the NPA about it. And we will see what comes from that. And we will see what comes from out of the negotiations between Transnet and McKinsey. Uh, but yes, yes. that is everything that they earned there. Rudy, has anyone worked out what the actual value of the services that McKinsey uh, uh, provided was? You know, out of the almost a billion rand that was paid, what, what was the actual value? Anyone know? Um, I know that uh, especially a team at the NPAs that uh, um, what I can say is that I think McKinsey, as well as regiments, uh, you know, immensely. We, we, uh, I've seen um, statements and invoices from, from these two companies, you know, where they, in a month's time, they will charge something like seven and a half million rand for consultancy fees on a, uh, on a specific contract. Now, I think um, you know, people out there, business people, uh, consultants, if you want to uh, invoice seven and a half million rand a month, then you must want to have a hell of a team working on that. Uh, so there is a team looking into that. How much they overcharge is, uh, is a difficult question to answer at this stage, but I know that the, the NBA and uh, the Transnet themselves are busy um, negotiating, not negotiating, talking with uh, regiments as well as McKinsey to get this money back. Well, we know it seems to be uh, 650 million at least. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be keen to know that what the real value of the work was. Was it 650 or was it a bit, you know, a three, 350 rather, or was it a bit less? Anyway. Well, I can, I, yes. can, I can tell you, sorry, Tom, I can tell you with certainty that um, the our investment shows that Investigation shows that uh, McKinsey earned or received from Transnet. I don't think that they earned it all. They've received from Transnet just 
over a billion rand, 1.1 billion rand. Wow. And McKinsey just also over a billion, 1.06 billion rand uh, that these two companies, so 2 billion rand uh, paid by Translate to these companies in a matter of, say, years uh, for consultancy fees only. Uh, it is, it is uh, outrageous. Tell us about Shadow World Investigations and uh, the, 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 the investigations around money flows from Transnet. Now, we've spoken about this a number of, the a number of times on the show before, where you have gone in depth uh, with, with, with all sorts of uh, slides and graphs to show where the money went and how it flowed. But who are Shadow, Shadow World Investigations? Uh, and have you done similar investigations to Shadow World as far as the money flows from Transnet are, are concerned, especially regarding the money that ended up in HSBC Hong Kong? Um, Shadow World investigations are based in uh, London in Britain. Um, they did a similar exercise as what Out have done for regarding uh, the payments that Cuesta uh, and Regiments Asia received bank account in Hong Kong. Um, and we, we worked totally, totally uh, uh, separately on this thing. We, we never spoke about it. I've been holding once before, uh, but we haven't uh, discussed that at all. Now, what is significant and what is quite nice is to know that the figures that we got and the figures that they got match up uh, to, uh, there's a difference of uh, around about $50. Uh, regarding the two investigations. Really? And wow. that is quite so that you've got two sources now uh, that can show, listen, this is the money that was received by Asia and Sequestra companies in Hong Kong. And that um, we can now say with certainty, listen, there's no uh, big differences in the two uh, separate investigations. Um, that... Uh, the, the, the testimony of at um, uh, State Capture Commission was excellent, explained it very well. Unfortunately, one cannot go into each and every little detail of those 600 plus transactions. But um, yes, it is significant, uh, the work that they've done. Rudy, tell us, uh, I mean, I sat in front of the TV waiting for Anar Singh to testify and then it was postponed because of a defect in the summons that was issued to him to appear at the commission. What's Alta's point of view on, on that? Well, it's uh, very unfortunate, you know, what happened uh, that day at the Zonda Commission. The defect was in the summons, uh, where the summons um, referred to a specific affidavit of Mr. Singh that he has not yet, uh, to date, uh, presented or submitted. To the, to the Zonda Commission. So it is a technical error, uh, but uh, I do believe in my, and, and our opinion is that the uh, Deputy Chief Justice was absolutely correct in his ruling, and that, you know, also um, uh, take away any doubt and any technical uh, uh, arguments that are not seeing this uh, legal team can, can uh, you know, put forward uh, when he eventually will and then uh, tell me, Rudy, uh, you know, it wasn't just Anarj Singh at uh, the commission. We saw uh, Marcelo Coco and Brian Molefi uh, testify. What's your uh, view on the testimony of uh, Coco and Molefi? Well, um, Mr. Coco, first of all, you know, denied any uh, 
meetings and that he knew Mr. Salim Esa, uh, and he testified, testified about the um, uh, prepayment uh, for coal supplied by Optimum or by Tegeta. I think Chris will also uh, be able to, to, to jump in here and what it was all about. But what is important is that uh, there's a lot of other uh, witnesses that testified that Mr. Singh and uh, Mr. Kok and Mr. Essa did meet. And uh, he said that at the commission. And I think, um, you know, in time, we'll, we will be able to see and to hear what the, what the Deputy Justice's uh, remarks or, or opinion is on that and who was the, the, the better witness of, 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 of the lot. There were times... With regards to Brian... Yes. Sorry, yes, Tom. No, no. Uh, with regards to Mr. Brian Mulefe, um, I think it was a big show that he put up there. Uh, you know, he was very uh, confident in what he said, and uh, but the most significant thing that came up that is that he out of the blue uh, implicated President Ramaphosa regarding Mr. Uh, President Ramaphosa Ramaphosa's involvement with Glencore and being the chair of Glencore and also said that um, Ramaphosa was also the de facto uh, chairman of the war room at at, uh, uh, at ESCOM. Now, again, I think that Chris knows more, much more about this war room than me. And, you know, he will be able to, to, to confirm, you know, what's the influence uh, of Mr. Ramaphosa uh, so much that he could be seen as the de facto chairman of, of ESCOM at that stage. But uh, all in all, I think that uh, the, the show that Mr. Mulefe put up um, will not, uh, you know, carry on for, 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 for much longer. Uh, he didn't answer any questions. There was no time for that. As soon as he gets uh, questioned by the evidence leaders, I think uh, the tide will change a bit. And then lastly, Rudy, we, I, you know, when I started the show, I spoke about the Civil Society Working Group on State Capture. Was the group acknowledged by the Commission and did it get any feedback on their correspondence to the Commission? Perhaps you can give so, uh, some background on the Civil Society Working Group on State Capture. Yes, Tom, this is uh, uh, an initiative from um, 20, I think, 21 civil society organizations who came together and uh, formed the Civil Society Working Group on state capture specifically, where we uh, come together and meet and discuss the work of the State Capture Commission. And we've engaged with the Commission twice before. The last time was with uh, the uh, leader of the investigation team, Mr. Terence Nobembe, the previous or the former AG, as well as Professor Musala, uh, this uh, uh, executive committee of the of the uh, State Capture Commission. Now, something out uh, that they gave us the assurance of is that uh, although we cannot see and all evidence uh, will not be uh, seen and heard and, and hear uh, be heard uh, orally at the commission, the judge will take into consideration all uh, submissions made to the uh, to the commission before he you know uh, releases his recommendations plus uh, you know it is there's just not enough time the clock is ticking uh, the COVID situation last year especially last year took three months out of the work of the state capture commission but it was assured that they will take into consideration all submissions the state capture commission we have written before to the uh, commission uh, the, la the last 
that we've engaged with the Commission was all about uh, professional bodies, professional companies, firms, etc., to, to be summoned or, or to be invited to come to the State Caps Commission. We think about um, you know companies like Bain, who was very involved with SARS, and I know that a former uh, partner of, of Bain, Paul Williams, will testify some at some stage at the Commission. Uh, KPMG, um, PwC, uh, Hogan Lovells, you know, companies that were involved and worked, and uh, prominent uh, South African law firms like Waxmans and, and Weber Wenzel that did work, a lot of work for the uh, Gupta family. We want them at the Commission and, 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 and hear their part of the story. Give us the explanations about, you know, their so-called professional conduct in what they mm. did. Rudy, thank you for the update. Uh, Wayne, I've got a question for you related to the State Capture Commission. It comes from Esme van Heerden. Esme asks, should these companies not face more serious sanctions? I mean, it's quite bizarre, isn't it, that a company pays 650 million rand back and it doesn't seem, I use the word seem, doesn't seem as if there's any further sanction. Uh, what would happen if a politician you know, gave the 650 million rand back? Would it be okay? Uh, what, what kind of sanctions should companies face for breaking the law? Well, firstly, I mean, they need to be charged with their original role that they played. Um, secondly, they should be struck off any government procurement uh, lists, every single one of them. And thirdly, civil society must now start adding pressure to these organizations that have been involved. Uh, anybody um, who's contacted by somebody from McKinsey and Bain and uh, KPMG for work, they need to be shown the door, you know, um, unless there's compelling evidence that they have, uh, you know, substantively uh, you know, turned around the organization, paid their dues, apologized, participating in correcting this country. There's so much stuff, uh, but we don't see any of that. So you're quite right. Paying back the money is not enough uh, when it comes to uh, these uh, corporate citizens. And, 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 and finally, the boards of those organizations need to be taken to task, yeah. uh, charged for their role. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done and it's just not being done. I'm afraid it sits at the feet of the authorities who are a bit lethargic. Wayne, another question that came in is from Devotion, and I'm just going to uh, summarize what Devotion is saying, is that, is this commission worth all the money that's been spent on it? So will we get to the end of this commission and there'll be a commission to work out whether the commission that we've just had has used the money properly? Absolutely. This commission is worth every cent. And if you have to pay more, you pay more. It's probably going to come out at about a billion rand. That's minuscule in the greater scheme of things. And as Rudy was saying, this is now evidence that has been heard. It's on record. This is evidence that flows into the criminal justice system. The NPA cases will be built out of this. Yes, it seems tedious and then long, but it, it is a big complex matter, state capture. And the further on it goes the deeper you see uh, the stuff that comes out, the tentacles have to go quite deep. So we believe it's extremely important. A lot of good's going to come from it. And uh, if it needs another few months uh, uh, extension because of uh, COVID and, and other implications, uh, you know, rather give it that time. Uh, I know it's been drawn out and I know it's a bit costly, but, but we believe it's worth, uh, worth every cent spent. And your impression, Wayne, of the witnesses that testified during December and January? Aside from Coco and, uh, and Malefe, and, and 
I think they were good from their perspective, from society's perspective, because they really dig a dig a hole for themselves every time they open their mouths. But mm. yeah, the evidence leaders have been excellent. The judge has been fair. I think you know the the the, the civil society working group and and ourselves and others have been a bit critical of the judge, and rightly so. I think he should have started exercising his powers a lot earlier, subpoenaing a lot earlier. But he's been patient, and I think he's been extremely fair, and you know, extremely um, you know forgiving, and uh, he shouldn't have necessarily been. Uh, but that's fine, you know. At least he can err on that side and not on the other side and be accused of, of, of not being fair. So uh, no, it's 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 been excellent. If you've just joined us, welcome to the Outer Hour. It's good to have you with me. I'm Tom London, your Outer Hour host. This show is brought to you by Outer. We broadcast from the Radio Today studios. We've been chatting uh, about the State Capture Commission, the witnesses that testified over December and January. Let's shift gears, shall we, and talk about the goings-on at Eskom and the load shedding we've seen recently. We've got Chris Yelland, our energy expert, with us tonight. And first question, Chris, why do we still have load shedding? at this stage of our country's history? Well, it's been going on since 2008, uh, and the fundamentals uh, haven't changed uh, since then. And uh, you, you asked also the question of who is to blame. Well, I, I think, of course, we do need to look uh, at who is to blame. We need to learn from the past, but we also need to look at solutions going forward to the future. But short and tall of it, why are we where we are? Uh, firstly, let's just uh, look at Madupi and Kusili. Uh, they're running about seven years late. Uh, if those plants had come on on time as they should have come on in 2014, uh, we would have had no problems today. Uh, so Madupi and Kusili are certainly part of the problem, but there are many other parts to it as well. We all got quite excited when the new management team took over at uh, Eskom, headed by Andre Dureta. Uh, although he did warn us that we would face years of load shedding because the problem was so severe. It makes it hard to work out whether this management team is making any headway. What do you think? Well, to be honest, there's uh, sort of fairly limited uh, possibilities that Eskom uh, can do at this point in time, uh, other than uh, proceed strongly with maintenance. Uh, I'm talking here about the load shedding issues, how to deal with load shedding. Uh, the availability of the Eskom's plant uh, has been declining year on year for several years, uh, and this is one of the reasons for the load shedding. Uh, there's plenty of plant, but it's not available uh, because of breakdowns, uh, random breakdowns as a result of the plant getting older every year. So the old plant is getting older. Uh, the new plant uh, is not performing uh, like new plant. It's performing like old plant. Uh, uh, and, and so the, the general poor performance continues uh, to decline. And what can Eskom do about it? Well, on the one hand, of course, you need to do maintenance. Uh, but mm. the best that I think can be hoped with maintenance is to steady the declining energy availability factor at the current very low levels. You can't make old plant like new. At some point, you have to uh, uh, bite the bullet and, and replace it. Uh, uh, but another thing that Eskom can do is finish Madupi and Kusili. Uh, and get it going and performing as it should, like new plant. Uh, there have been design flaws, uh, there have been execution and construction problems, uh, and these are being rectified, I believe, slowly, step by step. These are things that Eskom can do. But the real solutions 
uh, are not to be found uh, in this. The real solutions come from new generation capacity to replace the old generation capacity that really needs to be put to bed. Uh, and uh, uh, this is where it's out of Eskom's hands. It's in the hands of the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy on two folds. Number one, to proceed with the new procurements, uh, that is the uh, risk mitigation IPP program, the renewable energy IPP program, and then secondly, to unlock uh, the, uh, the regulations and the red tape that is holding back the private sector and preventing customers from becoming part of the solution. Ultimately, in the short term, in the next two to three years, there is only one way of bringing new capacity onto the grid. What's and that? And that is through the private sector. Well, that's the private sector and self-generation where customers uh, take control of their own energy futures, uh, become part of the solution uh, and put on their own uh, generation capacity on their plants or even remote from their plants, wheel the power through the grid uh, and, and relieve Eskom of a burden that is comp it's absolutely clear it's unable to fulfill. Which is the fastest option? When it, when it comes to either new power generation or shifting the consumers into their own uh, power generation. What are the options on the table and what are the time frames on each one? We talk about nuclear, we talk about uh, you know, coal stations and self-generation. What, what can be done fastest? The fastest thing that can happen is for customers to install rooftop solar PV on the roofs of houses, uh, buildings, uh, warehouses, shopping centers, factories, mines, farms, plants all around the country. Uh, this can deliver quickly 3,000 megawatts, 4,000 megawatts of new generation capacity within a year or two. And what In is, what, sorry, Chris, what does that mean? Three, three, uh, what, 3,000, do you say 3,000 megawatts or three megawatts? Yeah, well, that would, end, that would put an end to load shedding. Uh, so, uh, and this can be delivered uh, quickly. Uh, for example, in Vietnam last year, they installed 9,000 megawatts in one year in Vietnam, a developing country, probably slightly less developed than South Africa. Uh, in South Africa, we are very slow off the mark. Uh, we have red tape and regulations that hold this back, uh, that in fact discourage it and put people off instead of welcoming it and encouraging it. So that is the, the solution in the next two-year horizon. It, it Beyond might, two years, yeah. we're looking at this risk. Beyond two years, we're looking at what is called the renewable, uh, the risk mitigation IPP program, which is a procurement by government. It is slow. It's bureaucratic. We haven't placed the orders yet, despite it being more than a year after the integrated resource plan was gazetted uh, in November 2019. They haven't even placed the orders. Once you place the order, you've got to then get financial closure. You've got to construct the plant. It's two to three years away. And beyond that, of course, even longer time scale is the renewable energy IPP program, which can probably deliver, be delivered to the grid in about four years from now. Uh, still hasn't been procured. And then lastly, you've got uh, long-term options like coal and, and nuclear, which are actually not options at all. They are no solution to South Africa's shortages. You see, I, I look at this and I'm listening to what you're saying and it, 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 there's a lot that doesn't make sense to me. If the problem is red tape and bureaucracy, uh, and uh, uh, that can surely be dealt with 
within the laws and the courts and the parliament of, of our country. Surely those kind of regulations and that kind of red tape could be removed, seeing that the situation is so dire. Is it only red tape? Or are there vested interests here? You know, we've got these massive industries and big companies that are built around supplying Eskom with coal and diesel. Do they play a role in all of this? Well, I think they do. They play a role in influencing people like the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, uh, who fundamentally uh, it comes from the coal mining sector as a trade unionist, as a labor leader. Uh, and, and that is the industry he knows, and that's the industry he's familiar with. Uh, he's certainly not familiar with the new world of renewable energy. Uh, and, and, and there are a lot of vested interests uh, that are influencing the minister, including his own advisors, people within the Department of Mineral Resources, and energy, uh, and uh, I think they're giving him the wrong advice. Uh, and and uh, it is within the power of the minister to change the regulations, but he's very reluctant to do so. There's a lot of ambiguity. And some people say, you know, customers should just go ahead and do it. Uh, but, you know, uh, banks that finance these projects, and they're not insignificant projects, they can be hundreds of millions of sure. rands, they are very risk averse. So uh, if the regulations don't allow it and there's some, uh, uh, some doubt about it, uh, people like the banks won't finance it. They, and, and not only that, even big corporates, uh, the, blue, you know, the, big, the big corporates, uh, the, the listed companies, are very, very risk averse uh, and are not prepared to put their toe in uh, if there's any hint that it is uh, not legal or uh, not lawful. What did you make of Brian Malifi's uh, statement that President Ramaphosa is largely to blame for what we've seen as far as electricity supply in 2021 is concerned? It's absolutely outrageous what he's saying. He, uh, he's clutching at straws, trying to deflect attention from himself. I mean, when the deputy president became the de uh, became was appointed deputy president. Uh, uh, the first thing he had to do was divest himself of his commercial interests as a business person, and he did just that at Shanduka. Uh, he divested himself of these interests. He was appointed by President Zuma uh, as the head of the war room. It's really a, uh, a figurehead uh, with very little influence in the day-to-day -day activities of Eskom, and to suggest that there was conflicts of interest and that he was somehow the de facto chairman of Eskom is absolute nonsense. Uh, every time Mr. Malefi moves his lips, he is lying to the public. Uh, we see it time and time and time again. Anyone who believes this nonsense uh, is, is really being misled, uh, you know, self-deception. <laughs> uh, but of course, there is this parallel world out there. We've seen it with Donald Trump's world mm. in America. Uh, people who believe any kind of nonsense and conspiracy theory, uh, and these are the things that, that, that Malefi is putting out. Man, the guy hasn't even paid back the pension uh, that he unlawfully was given uh, and, and it was ruled unlawful by the constitutional court, uh, you know, rejected his uh, uh, appeal. Uh, the appeal court rejected his appeal. The, the, the high courts rejected it, but to this day he hasn't paid it back. The man is a common thief. Wayne, question for you. What's wrong with us as a country, Wayne, if, uh, as, as Chris says, 
Vietnam can install enough power to solve our problems using new technologies, why can't South Africa do anything, it seems, to move forward when it comes to power generation? And I suppose this exists in other industries. Is it something that we're suffering from, some kind of disease? If so, what is it? Look, Tom, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a, um, you know, one uh, issue. This is a complex matter, but I think it boils down to, and Chris touched on it, uh, uh, you know, conflicting interests. We have a government that has um, its fingers in a lot of pies and a lot of tills. Uh, the ANC itself is a corrupt party. It is, it is funded through corruption. These are the individuals that uh, head up um, the cabinet, head up uh, many departments, and, um, and they are looking to themselves and their cronies before they put the interests of society. And it's quite simple, uh, Tom. If our government was focused on what is best for society, what is best for the people and this nation's prosperity and growth, then I can assure you we would be well ahead of the Vietnam's, the, the activities and the strategies that we had put in place. We have, we have all the mineral wealth. Uh, we have tourism potential. You know, when you look at our tourism, a tenth of Australia's, and they, they're, on, they're right on the other end of the world. It takes ages to fly there. Uh, they've got a rock and a kangaroo and a barrier reef. We've got oceans, diversity, everything. So we've got so much going for us, and yet we do... Our government doesn't do, does nothing but put barriers in place. So I don't think we have a, a government that is vested in the best interests of its people. I think we have a government that's vested in the best interests of the ruling party. And if we could change that, if we get leadership in place that could, could, to, could wipe that out of the system, um, then I think we've got such great potential. We would be an amazing country with double-digit growth for many years. And yet we languish behind other developing countries because we really have blinkers on as a leadership in this country. Here's what that's I a, that's yeah. really an overall view. I mean, uh, a lot of others. <laughs> here's here's what I'm thinking. Uh, you know, if you've got a problem with governments and political parties, and then you've got the apathy and the risk-averse nature as far as the corporates and the banks and the finance houses are concerned. Uh, and it just seems like everyone is in this mess of not being able to innovate, not being able to push forward as a country, not be able to step beyond our problems. I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk and what he does, and Solar City is one of those projects. Uh, I, I can't help thinking that if you removed the red tape and, and, and you had an Elon Musk running around South Africa with a mission to generate uh, more electricity, it would get done in record time. So, you know, I just look at this thing, it's a people problem at the end of the day. It's, it's nothing, nothing more. It's, it's, a, it's a leadership problem, strategy, uh, ideologies. It's a number of things. Uh, and it doesn't take an Elon Musk or an Obama. Well, it shouldn't, It takes yeah. common sense. Yeah, any, anybody who, who just says we're going to put strategy in place that is all around job creation, getting business uh, uh, going as fast as we can, getting uh, tax revenues through, through efficiencies. Uh, I mean, it's just... It's not rocket science, Tom. It's easy. We just have to change things. And it's the electoral system that allows party patronage to thrive. Uh, there's just so much that's wrong. And that's why we challenged the electoral uh, reform and, and the law. And we were successful with uh, the New Nation movement. 
and others. That's why with the local elections coming, there's some exciting stuff. We've got to do things differently. But we as citizens have got to do more now uh, and take back this country, uh, not through revolt, not through being silly, but through being very calculated, focused, uh, use our, our rights, exercise our rights, and start holding government's feet to the fire in many creative ways. And that's what Arta's uh, executive team and, and strategic team is thinking about and putting in place. Some exciting plan. We'll talk about your plans for 2021 in just a moment. The final question for Chris. Chris, you know, I ask you this every time we chat on the outer hour. How confident are you that we're going to fix these elect electricity generation problems that we've got in this country? Where, where's your confidence level at the moment? At the moment, there is, we, we are staring down a crisis. And the problem is that the powers that be just don't seem to acknowledge that there is this crisis. But frankly, I, there is nothing that government can do in its own procurements and nothing that ESCAM to do, can do in its own procurements that can provide the generation capacity that we need. Uh, the only solution in the next years is uh, for customers to become more self-sufficient and to install grid supplementation systems that will supplement their own energy needs and relieve Eskom of the burden that it is unable to fill. And the beauty of all of this is it's not done at the cost of the taxpayer or the fiscus or the um, uh, or, or government. Uh, it, it's done at the cost of the customer. Uh, and it's the quickest way of doing it. And the problem is an ideological barrier. I give you an example of the kind of thinking, ideological thinking that I'm talking about. Within NERSA, the regulator, and within certain factions of the DMRE, there are people that believe that self-generation by customers is anti-poor. And that their role as a regulator is to protect the poor and slow down the uptake of self-generation. The logic goes something like this, that if people put in their own grid supplementation systems to look after their own futures, it reduces Eskom's sales volumes. And in terms of the current regulatory environment, if Eskom's sales volumes go down, Eskom is allowed to put the price up in order to compensate for the loss of sales volumes. Uh, the problem, of course, as you can quite clearly see, it's a completely misguided not fit for purpose regulatory process. Mm. Uh, that is the problem. Uh, and that's what creates this perception of anti-poor. But, but NERSA is looking at its existing regulatory framework and thinking that it, that is the only regulatory framework there is and that it, it thinks that its role is to slow down self-generation uh, as, as much as it can in order to protect the poor. It's, it's a completely misguided uh, ideology. Well, it would be an interesting ideology if we had electricity to pay for all the time, but it's not exactly. there. Exactly. <laughs> it's not there. That's why we need to relieve Eskom of its burden that it cannot meet. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thank you, Chris. Uh, let's look at Alta's plans for 2021. I started the show by saying that uh, Alta has no shortage of projects or potential projects, but it's a new year and Wayne mentioned local government elections. I, I want to ask you a question about that, Wayne, because I see that the EFF are asking other political parties to join them in a call to move the local government elections to 2024, I think it is, and combine them with the national elections. Your comment on that, uh, on that and the chances of it happening? Well, well, uh, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, but before I do get on to that, I just want to thank uh, Christian 
Chris is part of our, our energy team and an advisor to us. So, so very, very uh, active with us. And, and, to, and to Rudy, who, who, who uh, within Stefani's team, just continues to do some fantastic work. And there's a lot more uh, in that space. But uh, yeah, these are, these are great um, projects uh, that, that really haven't stopped and we continue to focus on them. But just, just with the call to try and push out the local elections, uh, Chris, I mean, that's absurd. That would mean that we would go uh, eight to nine years without local elections. And uh, if any part of government is in a, an absolute crisis, it's local government. The municipalities have been trashed by the politicians. Uh, the ineptitude, uh, the plundering, uh, the, the absolute disregard for, for, for residents and, and investment in our country is taking place uh, at grand scale at, at local government level. We cannot uh, wait another three years. Uh, so that's not going to happen, not on our watch. Uh, we will go to court. We will make a noise. We will, we will drive a massive revolt. Seriously, if that is uh, happening. Obviously, the EFF and the current political parties would love that to stay where it is because they benefit. You know, as I said earlier on, in local government, uh, the ANC benefits a lot. The EFF have their fingers in many pies in procurement uh, as, as a darling or as a kingmaker in some of these municipalities. And uh, we just cannot let this uh, continue. So local elections have to happen this year. As far as we're concerned, they are still plan to happen. If all things were, 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 were okay, COVID, uh, uh, you know, out of the way, it would have happened in about May. Uh, we believe that's been pushed out to August, maybe September. It shouldn't be later than that. We should not allow it to be later than that. The pandemic is a problem, is, is an issue. Uh, and they're going to use all the excuses and, and try to push this out because it favors the ANC and the ruling parties as well. It even favors the DA who sit comfortably in some of their uh, uh, their, their areas, and they're getting too comfortable. And quite frankly, if you look at local government, uh, Chris, uh, I, I mean, uh, Tom, the, the structure of local government uh, is, 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 is just sad. The three legs of local government are, are the politicians, the administration, and community. And community has been cut out of the picture because politicians have hijacked the administration, and they are plundering at gay abandon. They're just going extremely mad and these, these municipalities are broke. They don't have money anymore. They can't pay salaries. They can't pay the electricity bills. They can't fix roads. Uh, the reality is that many of our cities, and even in Johannesburg, the, the biggest economic hub in, the, in Africa, will have a number of its roads in its suburbs converted from tar to dirt. That's the reality. It's going to have to happen because they're running out of money. The cash flow is dried up, and they just do not know what they are doing. And people are getting fed up in the tax revolts that are starting to emanate out of this, where people are saying, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes. When that gets to where it's going right now at a critical rate, government can do nothing about it. It's like the e-told uh, the revolt that we, uh, the civil disobedience campaign mm. that we led. It's when, you, when it gets big enough, there's nothing they can do. And I'm afraid it's not the right way to go, but citizens are getting fed up. So we need to find... A solution as citizens and I think we have some and we'll be rolling out some of those this year. Are you able to effect real change without overhauling the system and I point towards the electoral system and how local municipalities and government functions? Yes, yes we can and, and, and this is what we're talking about now. We're talking about um, active citizenry 
uh, through digital uh, uh, you know, disruption and, 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 and digital mechanisms. So what we are doing uh, and, in the, and, and finalizing the, the, uh, the platforms that we're developing is to help organize civil society, that's community associations, business chambers, residence associations, to become uh, a lot more empowered in how they uh, put pressure on local government. Uh, it doesn't help that we sit in our homes and whinge. We've got to hold their feet to the fire. And you do this by proper participation in the integrated development plans. But you don't have to go there as individuals. You need to support your local communities, your organized communities, your constituted communities. And the constituted communities are themselves um, a little bit up in the air as to how to do this. And we've got the formula for it. And we're putting that together so that they can f uh, organize themselves into alliances as well, so that you don't have one residence association on one side of the metro and another one on the other side fighting the same issue but, but with a lack of resources. So we're going to help combine resources and hold local uh, officials to account and seriously to account and drive, uh, you know, organized and legal uh, revolts and, um, and, 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 and strategies uh, to, to, to divert funds, if need be, to organized entities within local government run by citizens to fix roads and, and take that money out of the coffers that doesn't find its way into the corrupt hands of local government. So that's just in a nutshell. It's a lot more, it's a lot more detailed than that. But uh, what, I'm, what I'm sharing with you is a concerted plan that we are putting together. And then on top of that, a coordinated national way for citizens to report infrastructure breakdowns so that we can start forming uh, and developing dashboards as to which towns are getting it right, which ones are getting it wrong, which ones take too long to fix traffic lights, potholes, water leaks, sewage leaks. Uh, and, and with that information, finding its way into the right hands. So you start to develop performance management dashboards, uh, stuff that you go to court with, it's a really exciting project. So these two digital disruption platforms that involve citizens, get them involved and, 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 and to participate will enable us, because that's what it's all about, participating and enablement uh, to, to drive real change at local government level. And then there are other uh, really exciting mechanisms, but we've, we've got to be careful where we go with some of those. We don't want to enter the political fray. I mean, the real issue is how you do change government and change the way countries are run is you, is you take over government and that you need to do through the electoral process. Yeah. But what we do know is that in the local government space, there are, there are independent candidates and they need some assistance and coordination. So lots of good stuff in the engine room uh, at, at, at Avis, uh, at, <laughs> at Arta at the moment. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, we will, we will give you the updates on those as they start to unfold. Wayne, let's talk about COVID-19. We've just seen a second wave of the pandemic uh, take place in this country. I don't think there's a family left in South Africa that hasn't been touched by uh, COVID-19, either within a, the, the, the small nuclear family or, or extended family. I think it's, it's touched us all now uh, with no guarantees uh, as to what's going to happen in the future, except for the vaccine or the vaccines, single and double dose vaccines that are being mentioned. What is Arta's position yeah. on, on, on the vaccine? You know, um, Tom, I mean, <laughs> yeah, if you study the history of pandemics and you see the big ones, uh, the, the, the Spanish flu, 
and others, they come back with a vengeance. They don't go away in the first round. They get worse before they get better. Um, I know we are a long, lot better off in this day and age in developing vaccines and strategies to overcome it, but we are. it, it, it is going to become, uh, it is a headache for this country. You know, pre-COVID, we were in, a, we were in the dire straits. Um, and, and this hole has just got deeper and it's not going to get better this year. Uh, we've got to we've got to get this vaccine into the system as quickly as possible. And, and unfortunately, our government, who feels they need to control everything, um, are just getting in the way. Quite frankly, I mean, there are businesses and companies like like Pick and Pay and and, and, and all of them and and, and, and A and B, uh, um, the beverage companies that they move stuff in refrigerations from point A to point B with barcodes. The, the business sector could manage this without losing one vial uh, of, of vaccine tomorrow. It's, they've got the systems, it's there, but no government's going to go and try and manage this. Well, I can assure you there will be corruption as much as they say, no, they're going to control it. They said the same thing about PPE. There's going to be bungling. There's going to be uh, problems, uh, you know, logistical problems, distribution problems. So hopefully I'm wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, one, one tries not to be critical. You've got to try and be positive in this. But the realistic situation is it's going to be tough. I mean, for Egypt, if you've been to Egypt, uh, you go to, you know, other countries, developing countries, they're well ahead of us. We are really just languishing because people just get in the way. People that do not have the skills. And then they go and put a deputy president like David Mabuza in charge of the Interministerial Committee to sort this out. Well, David Mabuza has got the worst track record out. He is just so incompetent, uh, you know, in any position of leadership. Read the book uh, Predator Politics uh, by, Rus by Rosanna Rousseau, and you'll know the type of person that is now being put in charge of the Interministerial Committee uh, on Managing the Vaccine. That is diabolical. But having said all of that, Arthur, Arthur's roles, this is, you know, logistics and... and uh, 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 um, and medical matters of this nature. It's not our forte, it's not our skill set. Our skill set is holding government to account. We do it through uh, fighting corruption and maladministration. What we are gonna be doing is unpacking how we can influence and play a stronger role in this vaccine matter. We've already met as a team and we're unpacking what is that role. Unfortunately, it's gonna probably be a reactive role to, 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 to what comes out of mismanagement. Uh, and that way we hold people's feet to the fire. That's what we're good at. Uh, to be preventative in the space, the government has to open the door to civil society, and they're not doing that. They're not doing that enough. They claim they're working with civil society and business. Well, they're not doing it enough, because if they were, they would listen a lot better and have already put in place so much that uh, would have had vaccinations now with, with more than 10% of the population. Well, we're a long way off from that. So we are, we're in trouble, I think, as a nation, um, and we're well behind the curve on other countries, and we have, to, we have to just keep putting government under pressure now because they're really messing things up. Let's talk about the, the COVID-19 vaccine money. Are you going to be, as an organization, watching where this money comes from and how it is managed? Are you able to do that? Well, the money is, uh, is, is, is still being found. Uh, you know, we, we've heard recently this week that they are thinking of. Now, this is it. They, they're planning to get the money by increasing taxes. Well, we've already put a statement out to that effect. 
you know, this gives government an ideal opportunity to demonstrate that they are serious about finding uh, money where waste is. Uh, we can, we've given them a whole list of where that money is lying. It's lying at their feet. It's lying in inefficiencies, bloated government. It's lying in China with the uh, CRRC. Uh, uh, you know, we can go claw some of the money back from the state-owned institutions in China who who were party to the laundering of uh, 9 billion rand out of Transnet. So there's half the money there. Swifambo and uh, organizations in Spain with the tall trains issues, another 2 billion rand. Uh, and then just to work hard at repatriating the funds, you know, it's not difficult to find it. By, by trying to raise taxes, uh, we're already an overtax society. We'll cause more capital flight. The tax base is diminishing, and it's the worst option. Uh, and I think they're starting to get that message. I, we don't believe they can. Uh, they, might, they might get a little bit out of it. You know, if they, really, if they really had to raise taxes, it's the only place that's effective is going to be in VAT. Well, it's an election year. That's not a favorable one. So they won't do it. They might do it after the elections. Uh, but it's a very unpopular one for politicians. Uh, but I'm afraid, as they did when they went from 14 to 15 percent, it's probably where it's going to come from. So, so when you ask um, how are we going to watch the money, well, unless you get uh, uh, the transparency from government, it's hard to watch the money. The 500 billion hasn't all been spent yet. Um, uh, they might have to go and get IMF loans. They might have to, as we say, expand the deficit. But those are bad options. Those are extremely costly options. We are encouraging government to stop the waste, to stop the rot, and to go and collect what is rightfully ours lying around the world. And that way we will start getting the money. And then encourage business to invest here. Change your policies, uh, Mr. Government. Uh, make it exciting for people to keep their money here, not capital flight, and invest in this country. They cannot seem to get their minds around this. And this is because you've got a coalition, a tripartite alliance of communist parties, labor, who really uh, you know, have them in the corner so often. I mean, government to be dishing out increases in this day and age when business are taking decreases and laying off people. Mm. No one's being laid off mm. in government. They're, over, they're overstaffed. They're overpaid. They've had uh, CPI plus increases. And then, you know, we must help uh, the Treasury fight this fight against labor. No salary increases. I'm sorry, because you, you, you're punching well below your weight as a government. Your, your, your performance is diabolical. So we must go out on a revolt as citizens, and we must put government under pressure. There will be no salary increases, as far as we're concerned, at local government. No bonuses, and they will pay themselves bonuses. Watch this. We must put Selga under pressure, because they also are supposed to be a watchdog, and they don't. Uh, so, and, and, and Cogta and all of these entities, we as citizens, must start putting more pressure now on government. Wayne, the immediate crisis is COVID-19 and the effect it is having on human lives and the effect the lockdown is having on the economy in the country. Is that the real pandemic in South Africa? The real pandemic is corruption. The real pandemic is unemployment and poverty. Um, the current COVID-19 pandemic is a, is a, is a, is a issue we have to deal with. So understand that before COVID came along, our pandemic was this economy. It was, it was going south fast. Um, and along in the side entrance came COVID. We have to fight that battle. So it's like being on a battlefront and you start getting attacked from the side. You've got to take some of your resources, your expertise, fight uh, on that side, deal with that battle. But don't take your eye off the ball of the real pandemic, which is 
those three big elements, and they're interrelated. Poverty is caused by unemployment. Unemployment is caused by corruption and lack of uh, good policy making that creates, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the engine room of the economy and, and gets our prosperity levels up. Those are the real issues. If we could fix those, we could be fighting COVID even more effectively. So we've got to deal with them, but they're two separate issues. But there's no doubt the, pan the COVID pandemic, the virus pandemic, has dug our hole a lot deeper. Uh, and, and our reserves, we've blown them. Many other countries are dealing with their pandemic uh, far easier than ours and assisting their societies in getting through this uh, a lot easier and a lot better because they're prepared. We were unprepared before we hit this pandemic and, and now we're in a turmoil and we're in a spin and we're putting people like David Mabuza in charge. My goodness. I mean, what are we thinking, Mr. President? What are we thinking? Because that is, that is just madness. Wayne, uh, the hour is up, but we've got just enough time for you to address the outer supporters. What is your message for the people who support outer in 2021? So, look, you know, I mean, it's, uh, we are passionate about our work. Don't get me wrong. I sound frustrated at times, and I am. It wouldn't be human if we weren't. But we're also excited because there are a lot of good things. I think this year the um, accountability is starting to happen. The factionalism within the ANC is starting to be dealt with. It's going to be interesting to see that. And we, we've got so many projects. You know, Dudumnyeni is going to appeal her, uh, her matter. We are staying the course there. R2 is going to go to court this year. ETOLs should have been ended long ago. De facto, it has uh, effectively ended, but we just need to put that final nail in the coffin. The government is just being stubborn there. We understand why. Um, SAA needs to close down. State-owned entities. Uh, the nuclear build matter has to be uh, uh, dealt with. That's on our uh, on our radar screen as a project. Skills development levies, the driver's license extension. There's so many good projects that we've been working on, the new ones that are coming on board. This team is energized. This team needs your support. Obviously, uh, we've had a, a slight dip in our supporter uh, ratios because of the pandemic and people are unemployed. They just cannot afford to be philanthropic and support uh, good movements like ours, and we understand that. Uh, so we need to go and find more revenue, find more supporters, ask our supporters to get more supporters on board. Uh, we cannot take our out the ball. And I think uh, just to finish off, Tom, just to say, you know, as frustrating as things are, we mustn't give up hope. We just, because when you give up hope, you, you, it really is the last uh, resort and you go yeah. nowhere. So we're excited about the fact that there are a lot of good things, opportunities we must drive them and at the same time realize uh, our reality and and the issues that we are faced with and and we'll get over them it's going to take longer but just to all our supporters without you we can't exist we can't pay our staff uh, uh, the salaries and, and and pay our data costs and everything else that goes with it so thanks to every one of you for what you do and enable and empower us to go and do your to do the work of active citizenry and and we're we are really uh, fired up. We've had a strategic review session last week. We've got some really exciting uh, things in our sites. Uh, and this is going to be the year of greater action. Even if it is a tougher year for us, it is going to be the year of accountability as far as we are concerned. 
And that's where we leave it tonight. Wayne Divinage, CEO of Outer, thank you for joining us on the Outer Hour. Look forward to the updates as we make our way through 2021. Let's say thank you to the team quickly on the air tonight. We're Wayne Divinage, CEO of Outer, Rudy Heineke, Portfolio Manager at Outer, and Chris Yellen, the MD of EE Business Intelligence. Thank you all for joining us and uh, hope to see you soon. And a big thank you to you wherever you find yourself in South Africa or around the world. We've got a of people that listen from uh, outside of the country and take part in the show thank you for pressing the play button this is the first show of the year there'll be one every week at 7 p.m on a wednesday night and you know that i like nothing better than to spend my wednesday evening with you so the invite is open to join us next wednesday at 7 p.m as the outer crew examine corruption and tackle it head-on in south africa I look forward to seeing you next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Until then, and I think it uh, means more than ever before, stay healthy uh, and, 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 and stay safe and come back to us next Wednesday. This show is produced by Benedict Sinatla in the comment section this evening. Samantha van Nisman, Head of Comms and Marketing for Outer, assisted by Ivor Cleary. I'm Tom London, your Outer Hour host, and I miss you already. Our fight to eradicate corruption. Administration unethical leaders and the abuse of taxpayers money by those in power continues it's fresh it's fearless and focused the outer hour where your voice matters